To be a great cook, you must be able to identify flavors. But using your tongue to determine if a dish has elements that are sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or savory, and what, if any, spices were used is no easy task. How do aspiring chefs develop this skill? As one expert wrote, this skill isn't just going to come magically to you, and I don't think there are any shortcuts. It's only after you've constructed hundreds, if not thousands, of your own concoctions that you will be able to deconstruct the ones that others have made. And what's true of cooking is also true of Christian leadership. It is only after a lifetime of successful Christian leadership that a man or woman can confidently identify its essential ingredients. If you would like to know the secret sauce of effective Christian leadership, you will want to hear what King David said on the subject in 2 Samuel chapters 21 through 24. Join Vicki Hitzkiss, Nathan Norman, and Kent Edwards as they listen in as David, after leading God's people for a lifetime, reveals the not-so-secret ingredients of effective Christian leadership. Welcome to Crosstalk, a Christian podcast whose goal is for us to encourage each other to not only increase our knowledge of the Bible, but to take the next step beyond information into transformation. Our goal is to bring the Bible to life, into all our lives. I'm Brian French. Today, Dr. Kent Edwards, Vicki Hitzkiss, and Nathan Norman conclude their discussion of the book of 2 Samuel. If you have a Bible handy, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15, to chapter 24, verse 25, as we join their discussion. Stephen Covey said that failing organizations are usually overmanaged and underled. Do you think that's true? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Why? It's probably not the only reason, but I know when I work for anybody that drives me crazy and tells me, do this, do that, stands over me, it lowers my productivity instead of enhances it because I don't want to, I don't want to, it's not that I won't, I just, I don't want to work as hard because it's not me working, it's them trying to puppet me, and I resent it. And I think a lot of people just quit at that point. Yeah. Yeah, they don't become very productive members of the organization. And and I, I management is needed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Sure it is. But management, its focus is to maintain what is already there. Its focus is not to evaluate, is what we're doing effective is it successful? Is it bogging down our system? No, their mm-hmm. their focus is to maintain what's already there versus leadership, which looks at the whole organization, says, where are we? What needs to be cut? What needs to be added? Where are we going? Management, by virtue of the role, can't do that. And so those organizations, they just continue doing what doesn't work until it's unmanageable anymore. Ha <laughs> <laughs> No, you're right. In my class at Talbot School of Theology on leadership, I define a leader as someone who inspires others to help create a new reality. Oh, that's good. Inspiring others to help create a new reality. It is not just managing, it's not just information, solving problems, but it's where are we going? It's the person at the deck of the ship with binoculars saying, this is where we're going, and it is so compelling that others follow. Guys, when you think of great Christian leaders, are there names that come to mind? 
don't mention them. Just think of them. Can you think of great Christian leaders that uh, you're aware of? Because at the end of our podcast, I'm going to ask you to see if uh, the characteristics, the recipe that David lays out for effective Christian leadership maybe applies to them. Anyway, think of it now, and we'll come back to circle back to this later, because today we're going to discover the aged King David's assessment of the two most important ingredients of Christian leadership. As we do, we come to David at the very end of his life, at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. And I think you'll agree that David was a pretty good leader, right? Yeah, he was among the best in Israel's history. I mean, he led them forward. He inspired them with a vision to reunite Israel, to uh, help it become the covenant people that God wanted to. Um, he did what no other leader before him was able to do. And so it's interesting to see the elements as he reflects at the end of his life of what made him successful. Let's dip into this, uh, his comments, starting in 2 Samuel 21, verse 15. All right, that it says, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. You can tell he's getting older. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm sure you were talking about David and not me, so I appreciate that sensitivity. <laughs> but why does the narrator give us this detail? He became exhausted. Why? The leaders can't do everything. Hmm. They just absolutely can't. You can try to do everything, but you just, just can't. I mean, every job in an organization should be important, but if you have the CEO of a company cleaning toilets because the janitor <laughs> didn't show up, right? That That's kind of a yeah. waste of his time. And that's not to denigrate the, the janitor, but the, the skills of the CEO are not in scrubbing toilets. Right. And so it's interesting that um, in keeping with your observation, Nathan, the narrator pivots and turns his attention to someone else in verse 16. He says, an Ishibinob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed seven and a half pounds. That is a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> and who is armed with a new sword said he would kill David. Oh, so David's exhausted and he's got an enemy. Obviously, this guy is big and strong because if you think of an arrow, uh, for example, think how uh, small weight the arrowhead has compared to the, to the whole uh, arrow. So a spearhead where the tip weighs seven and a half pounds. What is he throwing a telephone pole? Like this No kidding. Usually you can hold those things in your fingertips. Right. Yeah. Um, and a new sword. Yeah, not dull, but uh, ready for battle. And uh, But he was a descendant of Rapha. Nathan, help us with this. What, what in the world does that mean? Uh, that is the race of giants uh, called the Nephilim. So those are all the way back to Genesis 6, the heroes of old, the men of renown. Ah, so they were almost like superhuman. They were legendary for their exploits. And this son of Rapha comes to kill David. And what happened in verse 17? It says, But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and he killed him. 
Wow. So it doesn't say that Abishai was uh, superhuman or anything, but nope. but he came and took on this giant and slaughtered him for and saved David's life, right? In fact, as this paragraph goes on, there were four of uh, Rahab's sons who were against David and Israel, and in each case, one of David's men killed them. Why this emphasis? Because David's not the only one with giant slaying skills. He's, he's mm. not the only one who can rely on God to deliver him from a mightier enemy uh, than themselves, right? You know, the CEO is not the only person with skills. The, the pastor isn't the only one with skills. There's, there's other leaders in the church. There's other leaders in the organization that can step up and slay the giants or do the work. So you get the idea that David needed the help of these men in order to accomplish his task. Absolutely. He couldn't do it alone. And you don't sense that he was upset that they began to hog the glory, like Saul was when Jonathan was successful, right? Saved his life. Uh, right, he's alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's fascinating to me is that at the end of chapter 23, we're induced, introduced to more of David's men. This seems to be a recurrent theme of David at the end of his life as he's reflecting back on the lessons he's learned about leading God's people. Uh, he talks about more mighty men. In, in chapter 23, verse 8, I'm just going to pick a couple of examples here. What do we read? Well, I'm slaughtering these names. There's not a Billy Bob in the bunch, but <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Bashapheth raised his spear against 800 men, one spear, 800 men, mm. whom he killed in one encounter. Eleazar. No, that's amazing. Can you, Think about that. 800 men. Think for how your arm would hurt. So did he, I mean, yeah. imagine did he have if you were just killing gun? ants. 800 of them. That's a lot of ants. These are but, men. Did he have a 50 cal? Did he have a gadling gun? Did he? Uh, and he had a spear. What? That's amazing. <laughs> right, right. A spear, a sword. You know what's helpful though? Like uh, the the movie. It's not modern anymore because it came out back in early two thousand. Was uh, the Lord of the Rings, the first movie, The Fellowship of the Rings? Yeah. Yep. I remember watching that, and you saw, you know, in the Bible, you have Samson and he slays all these people with the jawbone of a donkey, and then you have a story like this where uh, Johesh Beshabeth, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Vicky did it better. <laughs> Slaughters eight hundred with a spear. The gift that that movie gave us, because you see Sauron, the Dark Lord, at the beginning of the movie, he swings his mace, and then, like, 50 guys go flying in one direction, right? <laughs> and then he swings it back the other way, and another 100 go flying. And I, I, I just have to imagine, this. it's got to be something like that, right? God empowered this man with a very difficult name, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he, just, he swings it in one direction, and they go flying. I mean, I don't know. I think that really helped our... Uh, our imagination gets stoked for a situation like this, because not like they stood in line, you know, fighting right. them one at a time, like a, a Bruce Lee movie. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't it doesn't it remind you a little bit of uh, Samson? Yeah. Uh, a man overshadowed with uh, the Holy Spirit in ways that uh, were unique and allowed him to accomplish amazing things for God. Um, you see that here. Uh, just to pick a couple of other examples, just because they're mind-blowing. Starting in verse 9, we hear about another one. It says, Eleazar, who was with David, when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Postdamon for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the ground. The Lord brought 
about a great victory that day, the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Wow. So huh. you get the idea. This guy took on the entire army single-handedly. Wow. I mean, one guy defeated the entire army. And then, can you imagine again, the Philistines? They're like, take that guy down. Just one guy. <laughs> yeah, you can go first. That's okay. Wow. Um, I'm wow. willing to share the glory. You go get, get, try and take this guy. Um, and in verse 20, uh, just for the last example of all okay. these mighty men. Okay, B E N A I A H, Benaiah. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to say, Benaiah. Yep. Benaiah performed great exploits. Well, he must have if they thought so. <laughs> Benaiah performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. But let <laughs> me just stop there. <laughs> I have been in Africa far away from a lion. And if you hear a lion, you want nothing to do with that lion. Imagine going down in a pit with one, mm. and he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaya went against him with a club. He snatched <laughs> the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. David put him in charge of his own bodyguard. Yeah, no kidding. Good choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of bodyguard I'd want. Look at the people that David surrounded him. I mean, David was renowned for being a great warrior, right? I mean, they sang songs about, you know, how great they he was. They sang and, songs about him. But even David's exploits were not the same as what we're reading here, right? I mean, this is, this is even greater. No, great leaders inspire and empower others to help create the future God has for them. They not only inspire them, they release them. They encourage them to use their abilities. I like that. They release them. Yeah. yeah. I want your help. I am not threatened by you. I need you. As the body of Christ has all many different gifts, I need your gifts in order to move forward. And um, you notice he's not afraid, like Saul was, that people would sing songs saying, um, you know, that these men were greater than him. He took pride in the fact that they could do what he couldn't do because together they were accomplishing the purposes God had for them. There's an interesting quote that uh, I came across by the speaker, William Arthur Ward. It's about teachers, but I think it applies to leaders, don't you think? Nathan, would you mind reading that for us? He said, the mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. Mm. Hmm. Do we see this kind of empowering of others in the New Testament as well as the Old? Well, first you see Barnabas and Paul, and then all of a sudden in Acts, it's Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> right? Paul, Paul becomes the main guy. Yep. Hey, I think I see um, Jesus uh, selecting 12 apostles, right? For what purpose? To bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they did a pretty good job. Notice they, he didn't do it all himself, right? Right. They even told them they would do greater greater things than him. And he wasn't they afraid of that. They did, though. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to rise from the dead. And, <laughs> well, and yeah, so they were certainly not God. 
but they took the gospel where Jesus never did. He stayed in a yeah. small area, and yeah. uh, they laid the groundwork for the expansion of the worldwide kingdom. And uh, by the way, how did they ensure that this would continue after their death? Well, Paul took on Timothy mm -hmm. and commended him as his, his successor and as another person to minister the gospel. Paul was not in competition with Apollos, even though it seemed like the Corinthians wanted to put him, <laughs> put him against each other, put him in a cage match and uh, see what happens. <laughs> so all through God's history of God's people, good leaders have inspired and empowered others to help create the future God has for them. What would this look like in a local church if leaders decided to embrace this? Vicki, do you want to go first? Well, I've seen it in a local church and I've seen it not go well. That's what's in my head right now. Yeah, same here. Do you want me to not say that? No, that's fine. Well, talk, say, yeah, talk about the negative and then... Talk, there's know. the theoretical and there's sometimes what is the actual. I've seen this happen in a local church, but it didn't turn out really, really well like this. I, I have a friend who's a pastor and he's an excellent pastor. He's interesting. Hmm. He's a godly man. Mm -hmm. And he hired a younger pastor and he mentored him. And then the younger pastor was so good, the church didn't want the older pastor, and they kicked him out. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think of that, you know, we've just gone through the books of Samuel. And um, isn't that kind of what happened to Samuel at the end of his life? Sure. I mean, he had served God faithfully, and the elders came to him and said, you're old, your son don't sons don't follow in your ways, and we want to get rid of you, and we want to have a king. We want somebody else to take your place. What's fascinating to me is that uh, Samuel warns them, of course, as God did. That's a bad decision to make. But on a personal level, he was happy to step aside. There was no ego in it. He was more interested in the fate and the future of Israel than his own. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at negative pictures of this too, because there are a lot of narcissists uh, out there leading churches or in positions of power in organizations where it is all about them and everything is there to to gently stroke their ego. <laughs> but, but the opposite can be true. I think what you'll see is the church looks a lot more like a family, where it just starts to organically works together, uh, mm -hmm. where... You know, it's like, you know, my family, once in a while, the, the kids will clean something up without having been told or asked. And it's like, whoa, what what, what happened here? You know, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, with our baby now, uh, my son in particular, uh, we'll be making dinner and have him kind of caged off into a section. And then I'll hear the baby start laughing about something, which I assume means he's getting into no good. But my, <laughs> my son just just decides to go down and play with the baby because the baby's bored or whatever. And he starts playing with them. And he wasn't asked. He was he just he right. sees a need and he fills in and uh, and he receives joy out of that. And it's not something where my wife and I are feeling jealous like, oh, do you see how he's making that baby laugh and smile? How <laughs> dare he? That, that baby's laughter is only for us. Um, <laughs> no, it's it, it's a joyful thing where where the family's working together to uh, to bring mutual joy. And I think you would see that in the church where individuals are using their gifts in order to fulfill purposes. And, and sometimes they're not even going to know, you know, the leadership of the church isn't even going to know what's happening in the church. It's just good stuff's happening. And that's great because it's God's kingdom, not ours. Amen. Um, 
And just uh, not to put you on the spot, Nathan, but uh, I know as we have talked personally, you've done a good job of this in your own church, identifying people who have gifts. You've taken uh, the material that we teach with Crosstalk around the world and given a uh, lay version of that to a number of your elders who have blossomed. And uh, as you've told me on occasion, they, uh, they've become kind of the go-to preachers up in the, in the region where you minister right now when yeah. churches need pulpit supply. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's hard. I, I guess I can brag about the church itself and not me uh, <laughs> because it is cool. There's a lot that goes on in this church. I have no clue. Right. Someone will say, hey, yeah. you know, I'll be I'll be in the grocery store and someone says, oh, man, I appreciate your church and how they reached out to me and in this time of need. <laughs> and I'm like, and okay, say what again? Like, yep. oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, well, tell me how it was meaningful to you. Well, how they came over and cleaned my my apartment because I was going to get evicted and, and like, oh, <laughs> I was unaware that this happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's great. Uh, it's it's really encouraging. The church uh is empowered to do the work. And frankly, I mean, I don't have enough hours in the day to do everything that needs to be well, done. Of course. Right. So, so it is a joy to give out power and to give out authority and to delegate things. And it's amazing to see how people just take that ministry and run with it outside the walls of the church. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's not about us. It's all about the Lord and Christ and his kingdom. And um, good leaders, according to David, uh, inspire and empower others to help uh, create the future God has for them. But there's a second uh, ingredient of effective Christian leadership David mentions, and he does so in chapter 22 and 23. Uh, we'll just summarize this, but, but uh, what is J David saying in uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 2? He says, the Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer. Hmm. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. Amen. And haven't we seen this time and again in David's life? Again and again, he throws himself on uh, the person of God. Um, what does this say about David as a leader? and uh, the qualifications for being an effective leader of God's people. You got to rely on God and you got to call out to him. You, it can't be a, look how amazing I am and look how, mm -hmm. how skilled I am. Uh, pick me as the leader, right? Or I should be leader <laughs> because I'm so amazing. Uh, when I uh, talk with churches looking for a pastor, I usually will tell them, look, find someone who's a little underqualified for the job, not totally incompetent, but a little underqualified that's godly. Uh, because then they're going to have to rely on the Lord. And when things happen, you know, it's not that guy who got it done. You know that it was God. <laughs> it wasn't that idiot. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that. Um, I listen carefully when I hear people tell of uh, successes in their churches. And uh, often those stories, as wonderful as they are, uh, contain a lot of I, me, myself, just to brag on some of the great people that uh, I get to work with at Crosstalk, one of those people is uh, Pastor Steve Gunn, Panama City, mm. Panama. Oh, what a precious man! Isn't 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 he? Oh, uh, oh yes. And, and listen to him tell stories. He loves to tell stories about great things God has done in his ministry and other ways, and and he always begins, always begins. This is a God story. 
let me tell you what God did in this situation. And then he tells his story. That's not artificial. I mean, I've known Steve for years and all of his big stories begin. This is a God story. God came to his rescue, to the rescue of what he was trying to do for God and his kingdom in remarkable ways. And that's how he begins. That's how David tells the story. Look what he says in verse seven of that chapter. He says, you know, that's that's an interesting thing because I don't I love Steve Gunn. I don't <laughs> think uh, and I like I like David. David, they don't strike me as the same kind of personality. Steve Steve is a wonderful leader and kind and, and gentle. I'd say that word. Mm-hmm. I don't think of David as gentle. They don't seem like the same kind of person, and yet they and yet here's how David starts. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. He parted the heavens and came down. The Lord thundered from heaven. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He rescued me from my powerful enemy. The Lord was my support. Is that a God story or what? Yeah, that was. <laughs> and, and you know what, too? I don't think of manly men as being poets I'm wrong about that, uh, but I don't typically think that. And yet, David was certainly a poet. And um, yeah. and isn't it interesting just to build on the comment you made earlier, Vicky, about you know Steve Gunn having a having a um, personality very different from David's? Yes, uh, leadership is not personality. Effective leadership is not personality driven. It is oh? no, no. Tell. Um, you look at um, all through uh, leadership literature. Um, about 100 years ago, they had what was called a, a Superman theory of leadership. If you had the super omnicompetent person, they could single-handedly rescue and lead an organization to glory. That's just not true. There are all kinds of different personalities from um, John F. Kennedy to Churchill to pick your leaders to Steve Jobs, who was an amazing uh, leader in his own right. Oh, you mean there's not one personality type that- No, no. Uh, is, is the correct leader. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, not I don't personality think driven. Yeah, um, just look at the difference between Steve Jobs and Tim Cook for leading Apple. Uh, completely different personalities. Characteristics, yeah, values, yes, very similar personalities no so that's why i think this is so interesting listening to david's comments on leadership because it's not you have to be my kind of personality but these are core elements of any leader who would want to lead uh, god's people and david is convinced yes he's got skills and abilities and yes he's got uh, very competent people around him but he's convinced that the leaders of god's people cannot succeed without God's involvement. Hmm. Don't we see that in the New Testament? Sure. Well, God agrees with him. He says, <laughs> and he does. He says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What? He's what? How much? <laughs> nothing. nothing. He's Ooh. talking spiritually. He's talking Ooh. spiritually. There are leaders that are not that are atheists that can do a lot um, right, as far as making money and yeah yeah that kind of thing but spiritually uh uh-uh. uh 
in the long run, it, boy, you want God in your corner. You don't, you don't not want God in your corner. And then in Matthew, in Matthew 28, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Why could the disciples transform this almost insignificant movement into the greatest organization the world has ever seen? They were empowered by God. They're empowered by Christ. They relied on him. Amen. David wants us to know that what happens when, in arrogance, we lose sight of this, when we choose to rely on our own resource instead of God's, when we choose to accomplish God's purposes in our own strength. Oh. All right, let's just summarize what the lesson that he gives us in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And so as David said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so I may know how many there are. After they had gone throughout the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. Whew, that's a huge number. That's a bunch. Why did David do that? Why did he take a census? Because he was wondering if his army could stand up to him. He, he was yeah. concerned about his army more than he was concerned about his the strength of God. And that's very understandable. Sure it is. He wanted to know what strength, what resources he himself had to lead God's people. So, Nathan, help us understand what happens next. Was God pleased? Uh, no, they failed miserably. Oh. oh. Because God was unhappy with, with them. David, uh, for a good portion of his life, uh, won most of his battles uh, relying on God. And here at this moment, he decided to trust in, in the size of his army. And um, it, the uh, punishment God brought upon his people didn't end until David did what? Until he repented. That's right. Because it was a sin for the leader of God's people to try and rely on their own resources and not the resources of the God that they serve. That's why um, David could say in 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 26, To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Yeah. Your eyes are on the humble. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Now, according to King David, there are two essential elements that must characterize effective, godly leaders. They have to, they know, these leaders that succeed, no, they can only succeed with the help of the people God has given them and in reliance on the power of the God who called them. Nathan, Vicki, when you think back at the Christian leaders you may have pictured in your mind's eye at the beginning of our podcast, do these characteristics, do you see them, these characteristics in those people? Yeah, you know, the first person that came to mind was Billy Graham. 
And you know what? I was thinking about Billy Graham too. Yeah. And when you look at how he did crusades, it didn't, he didn't just roll up with a bunch of money and publicize this thing so that people would come. I mean, before they would go anywhere, there would be thousands and thousands of people praying for months. He would recruit people mm-hmm. to pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recruited people to um, to get the word out. He spoke in his organization. Well, he, he didn't have to speak directly to churches. He relied on people to speak to churches, to reach out, to get them on board uh, so that their area could be evangelized. Uh, and, and talk about relying on God. I mean, like I said, for months, <laughs> there's just thousands and thousands of people praying, covering uh, the Aryan prayer. In fact, I was uh, listening to a Catholic speaker recently talking about uh, the decline of the Roman Catholic Church, and and he lifted up Billy Graham as an example. He said, really? "Look what the evangelicals are doing." Uh, he said he was the he called Billy Graham the second most uh, effective evangelist in the 20th century. <laughs> John Paul II, of course, was the first to coordinate. I see. Yeah, uh, but but he said. <laughs> Uh, they they would spend months and months praying over an area. We don't do that, he said. We we need to uh, we need to be like them. Uh, yeah, Billy Graham. I, I think there's a reason that he jumped into our mind first because he did this. And I heard him on occasion that uh, Billy had said that the hardest part of a crusade was the the most challenging for him was his praying after he had preached, mm. begging God to move in the hearts of the people that uh, had just heard the gospel. How many others think the hardest work is what they preached, what they did, not what God does? Well, that's convicting. (laughs) (laughs) May we listen carefully to the words of uh, King David, who at the end of the life wants everyone to know who leads God's people. The two most important ingredients for effective leadership are that we lead utilizing the gifts and abilities of the followers God gives us and to lead in humble dependence on the power of the Lord we serve. That's the key for moving mountains to accomplish God's purpose. We can only succeed leading God's people if we remember nobody does it alone. We only succeed with God's favor and the assistance of the people God gives us. I trust that today's discussion of God's word has been helpful and served as an encouragement to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Together, let's bring God's word to life, to our lives this week. The Crosstalk Podcast is a production of Crosstalk Global, equipping biblical communicators so every culture hears God's voice. To find out more or to support the work of this ministry, please visit www.crosstalkglobal.org. You can also support this show by sharing it on your social media and telling your friends. Tune in next Friday for our annual Christmas special. Be sure to join us.